Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number 24 in our series on American history. In podcast 23, we discussed or continue to discuss the evolution of the modern day American presidency. We looked at its origins in terms of the precedents and examples that George Washington had set, but then clearly discussed some of the things too that there's no way that the founding fathers could have imagined, such, in, such as a, a United States president having their own zip code, a motorcade, an Air Force what, you know, their own presidential plane. We looked at the dim statistics as well, the number of presidents that, were, that have died in office. They walked in but came out in a pine box, either through natural causes or uh, assassination. We then looked at the uh, Congress ratifying the first 10 amendments that will become known as our Bill of Rights, and then Washington creating the this uh, close group of advisors that is referred to as the cabinet and the way that has evolved as well. We ended that podcast looking at the first financial crisis of the Washington administration when Alexander Hamilton, his first secretary of the treasury, comes in front and center in order to assume all state debts pass an excise tax, which was the equivalent of a sales tax, created a national bank and a tariff on all foreign goods to try to pay that debt off and to raise funds. And that's where we ended it. And what we're going to do today in podcast number 24 is consider the impact of Alexander Hamilton's plan. In retrospect, I have yet to fear to to read or hear any historical criticism of Alexander Hamilton's plan, believe it or not. But that's not to say that there weren't critics of Hamilton and the Federalists. Now, remember, again, George Washington is our first president. He is of the Federalist Party. Even though technically George Washington did not run representing a party, he was his own party. He didn't have to align himself with the Federalists or the Anti-Federalists. However, the reason he's considered a Federalist is in retrospect analyzing what he had done in his policies over the past, over the eight years that he will, that he is president, right? So as a Federalist, again, the modern day equivalent would be our Democratic Party. It's not, again, that the ideas are drastically in opposition to Republican ideals or in Washington's time from anti-federalist ideals. Rather, the question is, how do we resolve political problems, economic problems, social problems, even in some cases? Federalists tend to look more for a solution coming from the national capital and disseminating funds or uh, resources or whatever is necessary, whereas Republicans or the Anti-Federalists like to see a, a weaker central government letting state governments resolve their own problems, right? So with this plan that Alexander Hamilton had formulated, assuming all the state debts, 
passing the excise tax and creating the national bank and establishing the tariff. I'm beginning this podcast by flat out asking, was that legal? Did Alexander Hamilton's plan abide by the Constitution? Now, if you're driving and you want to park the car and pull up and a copy of the Constitution and look through those four pieces of parchment, I'm going to save you the time and trouble. No. Nowhere in there, the Constitution, did it say, under the article that discusses the office of the presidency, that a president and or his secretary of the treasury can assume state debts, pass an excise tax, create the national bank, pass the tariff, etc., right? So his critics, of course, jump on the unconstitutional behavior of George Washington's cabinet. Now, mind you, ladies and gentlemen, please, unlike today, where a journalist will go as close as they can possibly get to a president in their face and say, you're lying, that's not true, what have you. This is George Washington. And at this time, in George Washington's time, because it is George Washington, the opposition is quite quiet about it. They're there, the knives are out, but they're very loath to go on public record attacking Washington directly. So they're going to zero in on Alexander Hamilton. But I'm asking you, in the 21st century, over two centuries later, if the Constitution does not give Alexander Hamilton the right to do what he did, then was he in the right to do it? Were his actions legal or constitutional? Well, to answer, it would be easiest if I to answer this by just simply asking you what kind of a teenager you were. Or if I have any teens and listeners out there, what kind of teenager you are, right? And what I do when I'm teaching this in the college classroom is I ask the students to put their hands up in response to this question. And you have to go either or. I'm not going to let anybody keep their hand down and say, well, I'm both. Uh-uh, you can't be both. Were you the type of teenager that one might consider to be a rebellious teenager? Or were you a rule follower? Did you essentially follow and dot every I and cross every T? There's no right or wrong, just which were you? Were you the problematic, rebellious teenager? Were you the one that mom and dad didn't have to worry about? And then what I do is I set up a scenario to, to more or less to demonstrate just how different their outlook is going to be based on the paradigm of what type of teach of teenager you were. So I put this hypothetical situation that it's the month of May in your senior year of high school. Not any or almost any senior in high school. The month of May, they're not thinking about finals, not yet. They're not even thinking about college. They're not thinking about any of that. Either they already know where they're going to college or they're just they're going to take a year off or they're going to trade school, whatever it may be. College is not on their mind. Seniors in the month of May means one thing prom. So imagine that all of you are going to prom. You've been looking forward to it. You paid for it. Everything is taken care of. You've got the hottest of all dates, right? I mean, you just can't wait. And it's this Saturday night. But on Thursday night, the phone rings, your mom and dad answer it. And you can hear by the, the one end of the conversation, you can definitely figure out that mom and dad are talking to somebody at your school, at the high school. And judging by mom and dad's reaction, they're not taking this conversation too well. 
And it ends with, absolutely, we will talk with him or her. We can rest assured that he, she, will be handing in everything that they have been missing up to this point. Absolutely. We are so embarrassed, but so thankful that you called. They hang up the phone. They zero in on you and say, sit. That was the principal or that was the academic dean. You're missing these series of assignments and all of these classes, and they need to be turned in yesterday. So you planned on going to prom by borrowing mom and dad's car. Well, you're not going to borrow mom and dad's car. We're not going to let you because you're not going to prom. Then I pause and I say to the class, how many people raise your hands? Raise your hand if you agree that mom and dad said you can't go to prom. The rule followers generally raise their hand. Yep, mom and dad said I can't go. But then the rebellious teenagers raised their hand and said, no, mom and dad technically said, I just can't get there by using the car. And I said, oh, there you go. Right. And the students usually have, we usually have a, a fun time with it. It doesn't take long, but it's kind of a fun activity. Then I said, let's play this out. The rule follower will be where Saturday night in his or her room doing their homework. Exactly. Right. But what about the rebellious teenager? They're going to be the ones that are going to be tiptoeing in the house at one or two in the morning. By this point, it's Sunday morning, hours after the prom was over. And there's mom and dad in the living room, folding their hands with the knives out, just waiting for you to walk in. They said, oh, well, hello there, Junior or Junette. Nice of you to finally join us. You weren't supposed to go to prom. And you say, no, no, mom, dad, you said I couldn't take your car to prom. I went there by another means. I got a limousine to take me, or Tim picked us up, or Janet picked us up. Why did it not matter? I said, well, really? Because if you really thought that we still said you could go to prom, why didn't we see you walk out the door? And you know why they didn't see you walk out the door. Because you got dressed, opened your bedroom window, got onto the lower part of the roof, grabbed the downspout, and made your way to the ground. Well, you know, Mom, Dad, I mean, geez, you guys... I, Every Saturday night, you guys have your dinner, and then you want to read the paper after. I just didn't want to bother you. By that point, ladies and gentlemen, that teenager is no longer asking for permission. Is he or she? No. They're asking for forgiveness. If they get it, they get it. If they don't, they don't. The time, hands of time can't be turned back. And that's what evolves within America's political system is this idea of the interpretation of constitutional powers. The strict constructionist theory states that you read the Constitution exactly as it is written, word for word, sentence for sentence. The broad constructionist theorist reads between the lines of the Constitution as well as the lines. Now, on the surface, I'd love to be able to get a show of hands from my listeners, but I know how my students generally respond. How many people would want a president of the United States that's a broad constructionist? Well, that's what the president of the Constitution says, but look between those lines. No surprise, very few students raise their hands. No, 
as some of my returning adult students will say, broad constructionists, that's just a recipe for trouble. That's a recipe for failure on the president's part, possibly getting America in trouble. Raise your hand then if you think America rewards strict, strict constructionist presidents. Boom, most of the hands go up. And I said, ready for this? Both of you are right. And it's true, both groups. America's voting behavior, by and large, not all the time, but as a rule of thumb, America's behavior, when we go to the polls, when we go to vote on the first Tuesday of November, is that on the surface, we will look you in the eye and say, we want a strict constructionist president, senator, congressperson, governor. Yep, those are your rules. That's what you can do. Don't read between them. However, we reward the broad constructionists. You wonder why they age so prematurely. You wonder why we've lost four presidents due to natural causes in office, right? Because they can't, you can't please both all the time. American voting behavior says we want a president that follows the rules. But then after the president's first term, they're running for re-election and their critics say, well, you took the Constitution, tore it up and did what you want. By and large, we tend to reward that. Who shredded the Constitution more in his first term than Richard Nixon, than Ronald Reagan? Yet we reward them with a second term to the point that no president has ever broken that record before or since, where Reagan and Nixon win 49 out of the 50 states. Landslide victories. Jimmy Carter, I followed the book exactly as it's written. I followed those lines of the Constitution. Yeah, 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 Mr. President, why don't you go ahead and show yourself in retirement? We're going to give somebody else here a try. And that's what we did. For the most part, again, on the surface, on the, on the, uh, on the level, we say, yeah, we want somebody that reads the Constitution line for line. But we reward those that read between the lines. Well, that is the theme of Washington's presidency. Washington himself, for the most part, will read the Constitution line by line, but his cabinet will be very much broad constructionists. So let's take that then and see if there's any actual time when George Washington does decide to read between the lines. And that's when he hears about a series of rebellions taking place through the 13 now states where farmers are openly rebuking the excise tax. They're attempting to trade goods on the black market, thereby circumventing the ability to collect taxes. The rebellion was turning violent in some places where effigies of Alexander Hamilton and even of George Washington were being strewn throughout public squares and then lit on fire as people trampled them. So George Washington asked his advisors for a quick meeting and said, where within the 13 states is this the most problematic? And they said, well, by and large, it's in Western Pennsylvania. He says, okay. So with that, he sends a dispatch to the governor of Pennsylvania to more or less get a handle on these rebels in the western part of the state. And what's that governor of Pennsylvania response? Sends a telegram back. Hey, we're going to jump right on that, Mr. President. Uh, I think it's time for lunch first. And then I think we got to go on vacation. Then I think we got to, you know, on and on and on. Why? Because he doesn't want to. That's half of the state. 
Western Pennsylvania farmers. That's that governor's constituency. If that governor ticks off those farmers, so much for his bid for running for re-election as governor. You ready for this? Washington knows that. But Washington wants to go by the book saying, before I do what I think I'm going to have to do anyhow, I want to make it look as though that I dotted my I's and crossed my T's before I go for broke. So he knows darn well that the governor's not going to do a darn thing. But he wants to go on record as having been able to say, I reached out and the governor largely did nothing. That's going to happen in the 20th century when President Eisenhower tries to force the governor of Arkansas to enforce Brown versus the Board of Education, right? Tries to, tries to enforce that, but good luck with that. Just because it's the president domain and it doesn't mean the governors are going to do it. And this is why, again, we are a federalist. We are, excuse me, we are a republic, meaning that there is a division of federal power and state power. And governors, more often than not, will remind their presidents that you don't have the type of power and authority that you might think you do. So realizing, again, that the governor of Pennsylvania is not going to do anything, Washington orders the army into western Pennsylvania to put the insurrections down. Obviously, the first question that Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson had asked was, who is leading them? And Washington says, well, the Constitution doesn't say who would lead an army in time of war, so I will be the one to lead them. And his advisors were aghast. His own vice president, John Adams, sir, you're really going back on horseback in military fatigues to lead an army into battle. Yes, the Constitution doesn't say I can't, but it also doesn't say that I should. So I'm going to do it. To date, ladies and gentlemen, this is the first time and it will be the only time that a sitting commander in chief will actually lead the American armed forces anywhere into hostile territory. But it is true to this day, no constitutional amendment has ever been passed. Any sitting president of the United States has the right to lead our troops into battle, whether it's the American Navy, whether it is our army, regardless, he or eventually she is the commander in chief. The reason for Washington's presence, though, the reason he wanted to lead them wasn't to be able to roll up his sleeves and wipe the saliva from his mouth because he just can't wait to wield a sword again in battle. He had no intention of doing that, and he didn't do that. He knew it wouldn't be necessary. Washington was smart enough to know that his reputation by and large preceded him. And as a result, when word got out that the American army was coming in to put these rebellions down, more effigies were actually made of Washington and Hamilton. And as the American army approached and these rebellions picked up arms against their own, against America's own army, Washington ordered the army to split and Washington traipsed through the middle, got off of his horse and more or less asked, I understand you have a problem with my, he didn't say Hamilton's, with my excise tax. The effigies were immediately tampered out, immediately uh, hidden, and people by and large dispersed. Yes, there were a few rebellious ones that attempted to fight Washington's forces. Yes, they were put in jail. 
But the bottom line is when word traveled through the press that Washington was leading the American army to put the insurrections down, the insurrections ceased. On the surface, Washington was aiming for Western Pennsylvanians, for Western farmers, that you want to protest a tax, the founding fathers gave you avenues to do so. You can write your representatives and senators. You can visit the state houses, the Washington, um, the nation's capital at that point in Philadelphia. You can run for office. You can vote them out of office. But lifting up arms against us is not an option. As a result, the army, by and large, meeting no resistance, resistance, few arrests were made. But here's also where George Washington sets an example. For the first time, he's going to issue and use the presidential pardon. All were pardoned. And that's what the presidential pardons are supposed to be used for. It's not supposed to be a personal tool to thank a rich donor, as Bill Clinton did with Mark Rich, ironically enough, the last name, before he left office, one hour before he left office, Bill Clinton exonerating Mark Rich, who was wanted by the IRS, who was wanted by the FBI, was an American citizen, couldn't step foot on American soil. But he was a healthy donor to both of Clinton's campaigns as well as his wife Hillary Clinton's campaign when she was going to run for the New York State Senate seat, right? He gets the pardon. That's not what our founding fathers meant that for. Our founding fathers meant the pardon for this exact scenario. When public emotion rises to dangerous levels, ironically enough, not that far different than what we saw on January 6, 2021 in our United States Capitol. Now, that, of course, is still being analyzed. Arrests are still being made. I'm not making the argument that everybody should be pardoned. But American sentiment and emotion can run to dangerously high levels. Once the emotions and the tempers simmered, Washington gave strict orders that all resistors were to be pardoned. That also helps to heal. It also helps us to move on. As Abraham Lincoln would do, during and right after the American Civil War, as Andrew Johnson, our 17th president, will do, and Ulysses Grant. Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter will also do it in response to the people, the 30,000 roughly Americans, um, men that deserted to Canada rather than serve in the Vietnam War. That's what the pardon was designed for. Please note, though, while Washington's point was clearly driven home, to the Western farmers, George Washington, and this is where we see that just because somebody has a degree doesn't mean they're bright. Just because somebody doesn't have a degree doesn't mean, by and large, that they're not all that smart. George Washington's performance here truly pointed to his political genius, and I cannot emphasize that enough. Because George Washington's audience really wasn't the Western farmers. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, it wasn't anybody within the United States. George Washington's intended audience to watch that display of force was the international community. Remember, we are still a young, burgeoning nation. 
1794, our Constitution isn't even 10 years old yet. We are still trying to figure out how the heck to crawl, much less walk and run. We are a country with vast natural resources. Washington is smart enough to know that Great Britain may have been kicked out of here. But that doesn't mean some other European power isn't looking to lap up the remains and the spoils of Great Britain's loss. George Washington's point was this. If I am willing to point American military hardware, if I am willing to point a gun at my own people's heads to force them to stand down, what do you think I'm going to do to your soldiers if they dare step foot on my soil? an attempt to invade us. To my own people, I pointed the gun at them. To your people, I'm going to blow their heads off. That was the message received by the international community. And by and large, during Washington's two terms, we didn't have much international resistance. So George Washington, towards the end of his second term, the question is begging. Will you be going for a third term? Initially, he didn't answer. However, in early 1796, he turned to his cabinet after a meeting of typical nuts and bolts type questions that had to be discerned there at those uh, presidential meetings. He asked everyone to stay a moment, even though he had stood up and by extension, everybody else had stood up. He said, I have made my decision that I will not be running for a third term. Simply put, he says, two terms is enough. What did he mean? President Washington, did you mean two terms personally is enough? In other words, you're tired? Or did you mean politically? He never clarified. Knowing George Washington the way that I have and the extent that I've studied him, nobody was about to ask the man either. George Washington could go down still as a president holding a record as one of the presidents, if not the president, that had the least amount of questions posed to him. It's not because they figured he didn't know. George Washington just didn't have that demeanor that, hey, come on over here, tell me what's on your mind. Let's Let's have a you know, bat around some ideas here. No, he made a statement and boom, everybody responded. He said, jump. That response was how high. So when he said two terms is enough, he walked out of the room, but the rest of them are standing there saying, well, what did he mean by that? And ladies and gentlemen, through to 2021, we don't know. And most likely, unless some other documents are uncovered in Washington's own handwriting, we never will. Ironically enough, if he meant politically, no president dared to break that example until the middle of the 20th century with Franklin Roosevelt, a full 31 presidents later as FDR's a 32nd president. Did he mean personally? Hey, I'm tired. I'm done. Again, we don't know. However, if that's what he meant, he had a darn good personal stethoscope onto his own health because had he run for a third term, and nothing changed in his lifestyle, he wouldn't have survived it and would have been our first president to die in office as he died on December 14th, 
1799. He took a ride on his horse, checking out his properties early on December 10th. Coming in the next day, waking up the next day, complaining of a cold, which then had progressed to a severe coughing fit by the middle of December 14th, 1799. It was obvious to his doctors and to Martha Washington that our first commander-in-chief, our father of the Constitutional Convention, our one and only general, full general of the American Revolution, the man that gave the power back three times when the revolution was done, when the convention was concluded, and as president of the United States, the most powerful position of all, he handed the power back three times. That man wasn't coming out of it. Looking back, more often than not, the doctors were probably doing him more harm than good. More about that in separate podcasts. But Washington roused for a brief moment on December 14th, looked over at Martha, squeezed her hand, and said, "'Tis well." And those, to our knowledge, are George Washington's last words. By the time George Washington died, his vice president, who had been elected to a first term, John Adams, word came out that the first commander-in-chief was dead. And John Adams turned to his closest advisor and said, well, that's bad news for America personally, internationally. This may cause us a lot of problems. How right John Adams was. Because as soon as the word, word got out of George Washington's death, the international community took their own knives out and they started sharpening them. And that's where we'll begin with our next podcast. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. If you like what we discussed today, again, please leave me a post there on Instagram, Twitter, or on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. 